0: Elizabeth Evatt is a towering figure of the Australian legal profession. Her illustrious and trailblazing career is marked by a series of firsts, from being the first woman to win the Sydney University Medal for Law, to the first female Deputy President of the Commonwealth Conciliation and Arbitration Commission, the first Chief Justice of the Family Court of Australia, a position she held for 12 years, and the first Australian to be elected to the United Nations Human Rights Committee. And even that does not fully capture the breadth and depth of the achievements of Elizabeth Evatt, who I'm very honoured to say is our guest today on The Year That Made Me. Welcome, Elizabeth.
1: Hello,
0: Julian. Elizabeth, that string of achievements is enough to make you a high achiever, even in the Evatt family, a family which boasts your father, who was a great lawyer and New South Wales politician, and your uncle, Doc Evatt, who was a High Court judge, President of the UN General Assembly, Federal Labor leader, and sort of retired to be Chief Justice of New South Wales. Uh, Quite a family legacy, particularly for an aspiring lawyer. What were the pluses and minuses? of being part of such a uh, famous political and legal family?
1: Well, it it certainly brought me up to be a sort of partisan politician of the (laughs) left, (laughs) that's for sure. But uh, also they worked in the law and um, encouraged me to go into the law. In fact, my father used to encourage women all round to go into law, Um, so I did go into law. And, um, yes, certainly there were some hard acts to follow there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Were were there many um, politically aligned Labor supporters at PLC Pimble when you attended that Uh, school as a young lady?
1: No. No, there weren't. And um, (laughs) that made life a bit uncomfortable at times when um, the Evert name was prominent in certain, you know, political controversial matters. My sister suffered more from that. Than me, because she was still at school during the um, the Petrov Royal Commission and all that. Mm, but, mm. Uh, and uh, I'd left school before the, um, the law to ban the Communist Party was going through and then the referendum, but she was still at school at that time. So,
2: yes. Was Couldn't law be uncomfortable. Always,
0: Yeah, Indeed, indeed. Was law always your career ambition yeah. independently, if that's possible for a young person uh, of the uh, of, of the family trade, so to speak?
1: well i didn't have um, I didn't have ambitions in any other direction, so mm. obviously I was encouraged to go into law and I just followed through on that because I wasn't yearning for something else. <laughs>
0: Can you give us a sense of of how many women there were at the bar uh, and in the profession more broadly at the time you started your legal career, Elizabeth?
1: There were not very many. I mean, as I was going through law school, you know, there were half a dozen, maybe ten or so in the whole law school, not a large number, and in the profession there were not very many at all. I don't recall if there was any woman practising at the bar at that time, though there had been. Mm. in years before and they certainly were after. So there weren't very many women about in the legal profession and those that were were mainly um, acting as solicitors, not very many at the bar.
0: On The Year That Made Me, we're speaking with Elizabeth Evatt about an extraordinary and trailblazing legal career. And, Elizabeth, I wanted to skip to one of the things I didn't mention in the introduction, which was your role as Chair of the Royal Commission on Human Relationships in 1974. Reading that report, even today, it is an extraordinary document in terms of the breadth of the issues that it tackles, the vision of a changing and changed society that it represents, and all the more so for the fact that it was done through a Royal Commission which you headed. Could you tell us about uh, how the Royal Commission on Human Relationships came about and something of its impact, which has been really profound.
1: Well, you know, this was at a time of change. Um, The Whitlam government had been elected in 1972, but already there were winds of change, one might say, particularly in the women's movement, which was gaining strength at that time. Um, there were moves within the Commonwealth um, Parliament to change the law of the ACT in regard to abortion, because at that time the ACT was governed by the uh, Commonwealth Parliament. Um, those didn't didn't uh, succeed in the long run, but the Prime Minister Gough Whitlam. I think with the the help of um, Elizabeth Reid who was his uh, advisor on women's affairs he I think he thought there was time to look into a wide range of social issues which did link in in a sense to that issue because there were issues concerning relationships concerning um uh, sex education um fertility control um, relationships issues, all those issues that needed to be looked into in a time of change. So they drew up a very, a very broad terms of reference for us, <laughs> very broad indeed. <laughs> so we went about to, to find out what Australians on the whole were thinking about some of these issues of social change. That was our task.
0: And it was an incredible task, as you said, the range of issues, contraception, domestic violence, rape, abortion, yes. child abuse, sexual discrimination, homosexuality. I, I wonder, did did participating in the Royal Commission, did it change your uh, view on things or did you did you already have quite sort of um, set views on those matters which were then manifested in the Royal Commission report?
1: I don't know whether I can say I had set views but I certainly had um I had liberal, forward-looking views mm, at the time. Mm. but um what changed for me was the um, I had the opportunity during the commission to meet with many, many, many Australians, hundreds of Australians all around the country, and to talk to to them and with them and hear from them about all these issues. So I learned a great deal about what Australians were thinking and feeling about these issues, that was the role we set ourselves. And with people like Anne Deverson on the commission, it was absolutely guaranteed that we wouldn't go forward without consulting very widely in the community. Mm. And Felix Arnott, Archbishop Arnott, he he agreed with that too. So it changed me. (laughs) Whether it changed Australia, I don't know. But if you look at the commission, I think you would find that some things that we discussed there, which looked quite controversial at the time, are by no means so now. They're more or less taken for granted now.
0: No indeed as a report I think it's been definitely vindicated by yes. by history although I suppose uh, it did take a long time for some of those things to uh, to be accepted could you perhaps chart out for us what were the immediate changes sparked by your royal commission on human relationships report and what that well, meant for you in terms of your career as well
1: well it's hard to, hard to identify any, but it, it certainly wasn't long before the anti-gay laws were repealed in in this state and in other states. I think although we uh, we reported after the Family Law Act had come into force, I think that some of our ideas were, were reflected in that legislation. And uh, as regards, yes... Well, sex education, I mean, education for relationships—that's still controversial, isn't it? Indeed, yes. <laughs> but there, there is still a strong, uh, strong support for it and some opposition.
0: <laughs> mm. So, after completing the the Royal Commission in in 1976, you were appointed the first Chief Justice of the Family Court of Australia. You held that position for 12. Uh, very, very challenging years. Could you give us your reflections on the establishment of that court and obviously the the controversy and indeed the political violence that the court faced while you were the Chief Justice?
1: Yes, well, the the Family Law Act uh, was set up to uh, allow divorce to be granted uh, without fault after a period of separation. But the other thing that it did was to create equality of of rights and obligations as between husband and wife. And later on, when the act was extended to relationship to 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 parental parental rights in general, became equal. And uh, although many people welcomed no fault divorce, there was some opposition to it. But I think. More opposition came from certain men I have to say that who didn't uh, didn't accept any interference with their parental rights and We now have this term coercive control, which we didn't know then, but certainly it was, it was operative then. Mm and there were there were certain groups of men who very strongly resisted any attempt to take away their control over their wives and children, and in some cases that led to to violence violence not only against the family but as you know, there was an extreme case of violence which led to murders of judges and the wife of a judge and other people, so that was a very, very terrible affair that we had to go through. Um, But the the Act was started with good intentions to try to assist people whose marriages had broken down and to provide not just um, a court to decide issues but also support to help people to determine their issues with counseling and other, other support that was our intention and and most people are able to resolve their uh, marital disputes, their family disputes with support. There are a few who can't do that and who have to litigate with all you know the, the bitterness that sometimes arises in these affairs. so we, we tried to do what we could but the other problem was we were never fully resourced to carry out our mandate so you know delays build up and that causes more problems for the family
0: mm. just an extraordinary challenge to establish a new institution implementing a wide-ranging social change to do it without re- the resources that you you needed and then facing unprecedented security threats was that the most yes. challenging uh, period of your professional career, Elizabeth?
1: It probably was, yes. That, that time uh, when there was that violence directed against the court, it was a very, very difficult time. And being the Chief Justice of the court, I had to be in the forefront and in the spotlight much more than I would have liked to be much more than one would expect a judge to be. But that was the circumstance we found ourselves in. So we had to face it, yes,
0: it's during difficult the period times. That Indeed. It's one of the years from your time as Chief Justice of the Family Court that you've chosen as the year that made you, Elizabeth, but uh, perhaps not for reasons that you might expect. What year have you chosen, Elizabeth, and, and why?
1: Well, I chose the year 1985, and the reason for that is that in 1984, the year before, Australia had become a party to the International United Nations Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, and not only did they pass the Sex Discrimination Act in the Commonwealth, but Susan Ryan was the minister at that time, but I was nominated for election to the committee that oversees the implementation of the convention. That's the United Nations Committee, the international committee that oversees the convention in all the countries that have become a party to it. And I first was catapulted into a seat on that committee in January 1985. That's when I took my seat. And that's when I entered the um, very interesting and challenging world of international human rights. I became a member of a treaty body overseeing the convention, and I met with women from every continent in the world, the women, other women elected to the committee, and we had the fascinating and challenging task of um, interviewing, as you might say, the countries that had ratified the convention in turn to examine them on what they were doing to promote the equality of women in their own countries. So I not only met this wonderful group of women from all quarters of the world, but we dealt with virtually, you know, every country in turn that had ratified the convention and got to know what they were or sometimes were not doing to advance women's equality. So it was a fascinating experience. I had eight years on that committee and then I was elected to the Committee on Human Rights, which oversees the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So I had sixteen years on those two committees, which was a wonderful experience, challenging, interesting, and rewarding. You've so that's why on, I chose 1985 because yes, that, yep. that was the start of it.
0: <laughs> and, and, and quite a sea change from dealing with being the presiding and most senior judge in in a new court na- nationally to dealing with an international institution and the the mechanics of the United yes, Nations. I that's wonder. Right. Given that contrast and then also you've been a Royal Commissioner, I haven't even mentioned your time uh, working uh, with the Law Reform Commission. Looking back on all those different roles, do you have particular thoughts on what had the most impact in terms of social change or what just professionally for you, you found the most rewarding out of that, that, that great variety of senior law and policy roles?
1: Well, they're all rewarding in different ways, (laughs) Julian. It's hard for me. It's good to hear. Hard for me to choose because I think I've been one of the most fortunate people in terms of um, career opportunities because I've always enjoyed absolutely all the roles that I've played in my professional life. I've gained a lot from it and I hope I've put a lot into it, but I've always been always found it extremely interesting, challenging and rewarding, everything that I've done in those areas. So I don't know how I can, I don't know how I can pick it, really. <laughs> in terms um, of impact on society, um, it's, it, it's hard to know. I mean, I'm sure the family law act has had a huge impact on society and some of the ideas from the commission. But in the international sphere, of course, we worked up in these committees to have a very good le- relationship with groups, interna- non, non-governmental groups in different countries, and we worked with them to learn what was happening in their countries, and then they took away the recommendations that we made to put pressure on their government to do better for women or for human rights in general. So really... It was a fantastic opportunities that I had.
0: It's an extraordinary career and amazing achievements. And Elizabeth, it's tempting to think that you you you've definitely earned a break after all that work that you've done, but you're still working to this day and still working in the international sphere. Could you tell us about what you engage yourself with these days?
1: Well, I've been a member of the International Commission of Jurists in Australia for many years, and I was also on the... The international body based in Geneva, but most recently, um, the uh, c- the commission in Australia has helped to bring some judges, some women judges from Afghanistan, um, who were threatened by the Taliban, as you know, when they took over a couple of years ago. They had no they had no time for women in any official role, let alone judges over men. So they were they were in great fear for their lives and safeties, and a number of many women judges have gone to different countries in the world, and there's quite a few come to Australia. But our um, our group, the International Commission of Jurists Australia, they specifically helped three women who were locked in Afghanistan, judges they were, and we helped them to get visas to come to Australia, and then with their families, and then we helped to get them across the border into Pakistan and then on to Australia. And they're here in Australia with their families now, 13 in mm. all, and we were very, very happy to have given them that assistance.
0: That's fantastic to hear, and Elizabeth, it's and been... And we're
1: still, we're still working on the problem. <laughs>
0: That's absolutely superb to hear. Elizabeth, it's been delightful speaking with you about your career and about the year that made you of 1985. Thanks so much for speaking with us on The Year That Made Me.
1: Yes, thank you, Julian. It's been a pleasure.
0: And we always finish up by asking our guests to choose a piece of music. What piece of music have you chosen for us and why?
1: Well, I've chosen Georgia On My Mind. (laughs) it's very specific it's a song that my grandson sang when he was at school first as a as a young boy soprano and then later after his voice broke so he's he's overseas at the moment so I'm missing him a bit so I've chosen oh, that song
0: fantastic well for you and your grandson here it is Georgia on my mind elizabeth thank you once again
1: okay
2: Georgia, Georgia, the whole day through, just a little song, keeps Georgia on my mind, Georgia on my mind, Georgia, Georgia, just a song of you, comes as sweet and clear as moonlight, through the pines other arms reach out to me other eyes smile tenderly still in peaceful dreams I see the road leads back to you my Georgia my Georgia No peace I find Just a little song Keeps Georgia on my mind